0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello. Welcome, everyone, to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. My name is Jeanette Cockroft, and I am a host of this channel. Today, we're going to be talking with Beverly Chalmers, the author of Betrayed, Child Sex Abuse in the Holocaust. Please welcome to this program, Beverly Chalmers. Welcome, Beverly. Um, I wonder if you would begin by telling us a little bit about yourself. Um,
2: Okay. I have been an academic all my life. Um, That's at least the last 50 years or so. Um, My interest, particularly in the the original stages, was primarily in maternal and child health care, And I spent most of my um, early years in academics, working with midwives, obstetricians, doulas, family doctors, so on, on caring for mothers and babies. Not only in South Africa, where I grew up and worked at first, um, but in Canada, where I moved some almost 30 years ago now, but also in the former Soviet Union. I spent about 20 years working as a consultant for the World Health Organization, UNICEF, Medicine some Frontier, other international aid agencies in improving maternal and child health in the former Soviet countries. Um, and that was from about 1991 onwards as the Soviet Union collapsed. Um, and from that, I began to work, and, and during all that time, I worked with women who uh, were giving birth in difficult situations, such as in, under apartheid in South Africa in the former Soviet Union, women who'd had previous female genital mutilation, Um, women in Canada and in the Western world who were giving birth in very difficult situations with high medicalization, intensive care processes. Um, And then I began to look towards where else had women experienced difficulty in birth. And one of the obvious situations was under the Nazi regime. So about 20 years ago, I started exploring the Holocaust in great detail and I wrote my first book on this in, called Birth, Sex and Abuse, Women's Voices Under Nazi Rule, which we talked about last time. And this explored um, the difficulties women experienced during the Nazi era, um, both in terms of how they gave birth and their reproductive lives and their, sec, uh, their, and, uh, their birthing experiences and early childcare experiences, but also their sexual abuse during this time. And as I read more and more about women being sexually abused during this um, 15 year period, um, I came across many, many stories of children who had also been sexually abused. And that led me, after I'd finished the first book, that led me to go into this area in more detail and to start to explore and try to find out what had happened to children Um, in in the Holocaust, and especially had they been sexually abused as well? And the answer was quite clearly, yes, many of them had. And that's what this book is about. This was about the sexual abuse of children during the Holocaust.
1: Yes. Um, Thank you. Thank you for your work. It's important work, despite the fact at the same time, it really is a horrifying topic, isn't it? (laughs) It it, it is. It's, It's incredibly difficult. And
2: not only difficult to study, but not always accepted by the academic community.
1: Yeah, I want us to talk about that as we get into this, because I found that very interesting. Um, One of the other things that I found very interesting is that you begin this book by providing a general background, of child rearing practices in Germany during the early part of the 21st century. So can you tell us what that context is and why you thought it was important for the readers to be aware of it? Um, I wanted
2: to explain and and highlight just how different um, child rearing practices were from what we are comfortable with and familiar with today. Um, and one of the primary issues is that it was very restrictive. Um, sexuality was not something that you ever talked about. You never taught children about sexuality. Um, you prevented them from um, having any exposure to sexual behavior. Um, for example, even little children, were, were babies were um, moved from wearing 90s, little girls would not be in 90s, as they got bigger, they would had to be put into pajamas so they couldn't touch themselves. Um, they would have to have their hands up, up above the covers so that they had no contact with their own bodies. Very restrictive um, uh, attitudes towards sexuality. And you never told children about the ba- babies or birthing or uh, the, any of the intricacies of that. You would simply say, oh, the stork was bringing a baby. Um, no one would ever explain how the baby got into the mother's uh, uterus or out of it. So these were were secrets in in that time of life, and young girls grew up until you know quite late into their um, adolescence and early early womanhood, not even knowing the basic facts of life or anything about sexuality or childbirth. So it's quite a different world. And this was not just Jewish women, it was all women. And this is why I I included a description of what I learned about um, German society. And it's not likely to be very different across most of Europe at that time, most of the world at that time.
1: And how does this fit with um, the Nazi indoctrination of um, Hitler, youth and young people around issues of sexuality in the body? Well, there were mixed
2: attitudes. Um, For men, of course, for boys, um, sexual experience was regarded as as something valuable, but for girls it was not. Um, There were strong condemnations of homosexuality, so sex uh, uh, across the same gender was not accepted um, at all, especially not amongst uh, men. Um, But Amongst women, the, the girls were blamed for this if, uh, and for any kind of sexual contact. Girls were blamed. It was always the, the girls would be regarded as uh, having incited the sexual action. Um, they were to blame. It was very much victim blaming for girls, but not for boys. They were, they were um, exploring their worlds. And uh, that was just something that men did. Um, it's quite a different value, and we had this until quite recently in our world too. I, I don't think, um, you know, I remember as as a growing up, a young teenager, you know, it was ex- expected that the man would be experienced at, at, at marriage, but the girl was certainly not supposed to be. Um, I don't think these 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 uh, values had changed very much until quite recently.
1: Oh, indeed, right? I mean, young women today in the media are still subjected to things like slut shaming, if, if they have what is considered too much experience or too much interest. So yeah, some things do not change. Um, why did you think it was important for the readers to have this background before you started talking about the larger issues of child abuse?
2: Um, I wanted people to understand just how shocking um, the experiences that women had once they were confined to ghettos and particularly sent to the camps, just how shocking this really was for them. I mean, it's shocking for anybody, but given the, the blatant nudity that was expected of women, they were stripped as soon as they arrived in the camps they were forced to undress in front of each other and in front of male guards. They were shaved, um, pubic hair shaved, all parts of the of, of the body, bodily hair shaved, always by men um, and sometimes by their own relatives. Sometimes their own brothers or, or fathers um, were in, forced to do the shaving. Um, so, it, it you know, the kind of shock and horror that these women experienced, the dehumanization, the Embarrassment um, it was, was overwhelming in a society where women did never uncover their bodies, were not allowed to go dating, didn't have interactions with men that weren't were, really supervised or in appropriate places. And I put that in inverted commas. Um, and such blatant exposure and humiliation was was really dramatic for for women, and especially for young girls at that time.
1: Indeed. Um, so let's switch the focus a little bit. Um, how do you define uh, child sex abuse in in the context of your work?
2: Yes, I defined it very broadly um, as any kind, of, and any kind of, obviously, any kind of sexual contact, physical contact involving any kind of sexuality, where it was fondling or um, touching or intercourse in any way. um, Those are obviously the sexual things. But I also included for children um, observing sex, observing the sexual act, um, being around where this was happening, um, perhaps hidden under a bed while a woman on top of the bed was active in the sexual encounter, um, that sometimes was life saving. By the way, were not always um, devastating for the child, but still exposure to sexuality, um, any kind of um, touching, um, phys- emotional, verbal abuse more than anything else, or verbal sexual uh, connotations, um, and in in many situations, these girls were were forced to. Um, engage in sexual behavior in order to survive. And that I also included as sexual abuse um, because it really was. Uh, you know. And afterwards, after the war, many of these girls were, as you phrased it a few minutes ago, slut-shamed. Um, it was believed that they could only have survived if they had collaborated with the Germans or with the Nazis, um, engaged in sexual activity, and therefore they were compliant with the Nazis and therefore were to be condemned. And that image stayed with them for many, many decades after the war ended. Um, but all of these, as far as I was concerned, were, were included as sexual behavior. Now, the United Nations regards all children under the age of 18 as children for the purpose of sexual um, assessment or sexual behavior. I didn't in the book. Um, I looked at children that were up to about the age of 13 or 14 in the, in the majority of cases. Um, this was primarily because at the age of 13, when children arrived at the concentration camps, they were usually sent straight to the gas if they were under this age. Um, if they were older than this age, there was a chance that they would be regarded as um, able to contribute to the work efforts of the Nazis and contribute to the war efforts of the Nazis. Um, So they often or sometimes were saved. Um, And with boys in particular, they were used in the camps in in a sexual way as well, but usually from about the age of 13 onwards. So I did include some of the boys um, to about 13, 14, 15. But for the girls in particular, it was really only under the age of 13 very difficult to, to find these cases. Um, I looked for children who, who were born between 1930 and 1945. So most of those would have been younger than 13 or 15 at the, by the time the war ended. And that's how I tried to find the sample that I was uh, working with. And who are the abusers? <laughs> abusers come from everywhere. Um, as they do in life today as well, um, but they were they were Germans. They were people in any of the countries that children were found in. Um, they were the SS. They were um, fellow prisoners in many situations. They were um, uh, the the occupying armies that came in. Um, that again raped women and children as they as they did. Sometimes it was people in DP camps. So even the uh, the Allied uh, soldiers who were their rescuers, saviors, were also involved in some sexual abuse. They were predominantly um, people who hid children. The majority of children who survived. Very few children survived to begin with, and I can come back to that. The figures for you, but very few children survived but of those who did survive the majority were those who were hidden hidden with families hidden in, in schools hidden in any kind of institutions which were willing to to take jewish children um, sometimes not even knowing they were jewish and and care for them during the war but very often families or farmers and most of the sexual abuse occurred amongst children who were in these hiding situations in hiding families or hiding institutions
1: that um, that was uh, that was astonishing to mm-hmm. me. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, I wasn't it, expect it, it I wasn't was expecting expecting, it. expecting that, yes. Um, one would think that these
2: the people who volunteered to take children and look after them did just that. They volunteered. No one was forced to look after a Jewish child. Um, and to hide them, but only people who volunteered to do so um, had the children. Um, but very often the the motivation for wanting to take a child was really to get some kind of slave labor, was to have someone to do all the unwanted chores around the house uh, or the farm, and, and to the one who would be sent to fetch the water or to clean up or you know, swab the floors down, or um, they were the ones who did all the nasty jobs. Um, Sometimes they were, and most times these children were not included in the family activities. So they didn't eat with the family or go with the family to church or to school. They were just kept as domestic slaves in many ways. And these are often the children that were were sexually abused Um, for a multitude of reasons. Sometimes they were regarded as the enemy sometimes they, uh, they were seen as well this is your just deserts. Um, you know the Jews killed Christ therefore um, and, and that was the belief at the time um, therefore this is your punishment and it's you know it's just your problem um, we are and, and on the other hand it was just matters uh, opportunity and power that led to sexual abuse. Children were, were in hiding so they had no way of speaking to anybody or calling for help. Um, they had to conceal the fact that they were Jewish. Um, they had no one to turn to, no teacher, no, no religious rabbi or priest or anyone that they could ask for help. Um, their own parents, were separ- they were separated from their own parents. They knew, had no idea where their parents were. Their children didn't know where they were. The parents didn't know where the children were, couldn't know, it was otherwise their safety would have been jeopardized. Um, so they were t- entirely alone. And in that situation, in a family where perhaps the father or other male relatives in the family or older siblings, in male siblings, um, were basically at liberty to abuse these children. And the children had no recourse, no way to defend themselves. They were little and no way to seek help. So it was an amazing opportunity for perpetrators, if they wanted to, to, to take advantage of the children. And some did. And,
1: and we are talking largely about male abusers?
2: Yes. The majority of the cases that I came across were male abusers. Only very few were women abusers. Um, The majority of them were also not Jewish abusers. They were Gentile abusers, as most of the children were hidden with Gentile families or institutions. Jews, of course, were targeted by the Nazis and couldn't help very much at all. Um, And so it was primarily men and primarily primarily non-Jewish men and usually rescuers um, who were involved because they had contact with these children. Um, very,
1: very difficult situation, yes. Indeed. Oh, I cannot imagine being a child in such a horrifying circumstance. Um, What about abuse in some contexts that might be more familiar to listeners? Um, Medical experimentations, for example, or in the camps and in the ghetto. Can you tell us a a bit about that? Okay, these
2: are all different questions. Um, The ghettos all families, all Jewish families um, across most of Eastern Europe in particular, but many most parts of Europe, were confined to ghettos, to parts of the city where they were isolated and could not interact with the so-called Aryan population, the the German, white, Nordic-style population. Um, And in that situation... um, Children were exposed to sexual behavior in different ways. Um, Families were confined to living in a single room, which could have six, eight, ten people living in the same room. Sometimes different families mixed together. Incredible overcrowding and incredible um, filth and dirt and poverty and lack of food. Um, All of these things were were horrific in in those situations. So children were exposed to sexual behavior. Sexual behavior occurred. And they were obviously in the same room most of the time. Um, They too, um, sometimes it was possible for married couples to escape the so-called selections. The Nazis imposed selections in the ghettos. Um, The committee that was appointed, the Jewish committee that was appointed to do the nasty work of the, the SS would be forced to round up so many um, Jewish people to be sent on a transport to the camps. And um, they, these uh, these groups would select people to go um, and be sent away. And they would, um, sometimes the choice was made, especially by some of the, the leaders of the, these committees, um, to send the children first, because... could hope to save the older population so the children were rounded up first and even when rounded onto the trains pushed onto the trains, somebody sitting next to them might start to grope them or to touch them Um, so children were abused even in that situation they were abused by in any situation you can find in the trains in the camps in the ghettos um, in the you you name it on the farms and by anyone around them who could take advantage of them. Now, some of these children in the ghettos, because the parents were forced to work in the, in, in, in the, uh, the Nazi industries that were in the camps making uniforms and so on, um, the, and the starvation that was there, the children sometimes managed to, to escape um, through the ghetto walls into the, the so-called Aryan side of the cities um, and, and come back with food. They became the smugglers of food into the ghetto to help their families. And they were then exposed sometimes on the on the other side, on the outside, to sexual abuse as well. They would be alone on the streets. Some of them, for example, in the Warsaw ghetto, became or outside of the ghetto became cigarette sellers. They would buy cigarettes and sell them in order to and, and disguise themselves just as, as waifs of, of street children and managed to, to bring back some food into the ghetto. But they were then young children exposed on the streets and also open to abuse. Um, you, you cannot imagine almost any situation that you think of where the children were not exposed to abuse. Now, the interesting thing is that it was not Nazi policy to target children for sexual abuse. In fact, it was forbidden. It was not a part of the Nazi ideology. Um sexual contact with children was forbidden, and particularly homosexual contact was forbidden. Um, but um, the 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 breakdown of the families that occurred because of the Nazi regime led to a lack of restriction on the children, a lack of monitoring of, of guidance from families. Men left left the Nazi regime very early on to try and find ways for their family to escape, went to other countries to try to see if they could um, uh, find a job where their family could follow them in the early years, before the war. Um, And so the children were left at home with the mother. The mother was left without an income. Their businesses were often confiscated. So the mothers would have to go out and try and find work, which meant that the children were left alone at home, uh, no one to supervise them, no one to monitor who they went with, who they were out, who the children were outside with. All of that led to much greater vulnerability of the children, um, with, and without parental controls or guidance, um, they were more susceptible to abuse. Um, and so it wasn't a Nazi policy to sex, sexually abuse children. In fact, that was not approved. But because of the breakdown in the whole family structure that occurred in the Nazi era, these children were just more vulnerable to sexual abuse. And it was guards, it was policemen, it was uh, the Nazis, it was uh, the, the other populations that would abuse them. Children alone were were, were vulnerable.
1: Oh, and... Um... Let's talk a little bit about experimentation.
2: Okay. Very few of the children, um, when when people were sent from the ghettos into the camps, children were usually the first to be sent to the, to the gas chambers. They were killed. They were not even registered in the camps. Um, there was no record kept of them. Um, they were sent straight to the gas chambers together with their mothers. So the mothers or the grandmothers, whoever was holding the children, would be sent with the children and killed straight away. They were simply murdered. But a few of the camps did allow some of the children to come in. And in Auschwitz, which was the biggest camp where the most Jews were killed in any one place um, in particular, had and many of the camps had medical experimentation programs going on them but auschwitz did in particular have one that targeted children um we know of joseph Mengele, who is the most uh, well-known of all the camp doctors who was involved in medical experimentation and there were many he was not the only one but he's probably the most renowned one um he had a particular interest in children and particularly in twins um, so any of the families arriving at the at the, at the camps, and they when they were unloaded out of these cattle cars in which they were transported, people would go down saying, "Are there twins? Are there twins here? Are there any twins?" And twins can come with me. I'll take them, and were taken to uh, Mangala's um, barracks where he uh, could look after them. Look after them. He could experiment on them. Um, so the twins in particular are uh, a very a very interesting group. He was interested. One of the one of the bits of research that he was interested in was, um, could you make, if twins had sexual contact with other twins, would they then reproduce twins? He was looking to see how could you enhance the uh, the Aryan race. Could you create more Germans, more appropriate, uh, approved so called approved Germans? Um, and one way would have been to stimulate uh, twin births. Um, so, twins became a topic for, for him to research, um, and that part of it actually resulted in some uh, rare discussions of um, forced sexual contact between twins as part of his experiments. Um, and there are a number of individuals have who have reported that that happened. Um his other aspects of twins was could you change eye colour because one of the things that was valued with people who had blue eyes, blonde hair, um, very much the the Nordic appearance um, that was regarded as superior than than the dark, swarthy people of perhaps more Semitic backgrounds or African backgrounds, for example. Um, so they were um, selected to see if you could change their eye color. Could you put some kind of chemical into the eyes and change their eye color? And all sorts of horrible experiments like that. Yeah, he, he was uh, particularly renowned. But his, his, the, the, the sexual abuse of children um, in, in terms of experimentation is, is largely attributed to, to him and to Auschwitz and others working with him
1: what is the what was the long-term impact of this experience on the children who survived and the generations that came after them um
2: is particularly their sexual abuse aspects is that what you're most interested in um one of the most difficult things for these children was when they were eventually released the few that survived just by the way About 30% of the um, Jewish population survived the Nazi um, era, but only about 10% of the children. So children in particular died in vast, vast quantities. But those who survived and those who then told of their experiences relating to sexual uh, abuse or interference or whatever, were often um, discounted, their stories were discounted Uh, they were said, what do you know? What do you know about sex? You were just a child. You're too little. You don't understand this. And you you couldn't possibly know what was going on. Um, And on top of that, the children themselves didn't have the words to describe what had happened or what they saw. Um, As I said, they were not um, exposed to sexual information. It was not regarded as important to educate children about sexual behavior. Um, So they didn't know what they were seeing. They didn't know it was wrong if it occurred. So the children that were in hiding families and looked after by the so-called people that they looked up to as their saviors, their rescuers, and were their substitute parents, um, they didn't know that there was anything wrong when somebody started to touch or fondle or actually force intercourse with them. Um, they may not have liked it or found it painful or uncomfortable or thought that something was wrong, but they they didn't understand or know. And when they told those stories after the war... Um, those who were looking after them um, just discounted them and said what could you know what did you understand you were just a child which many of them have described as as Holocaust denial they say they experienced the Holocaust but they also experienced Holocaust denial because their own experiences of the Holocaust had been totally ignored and denied and discounted and um, they learned to keep quiet and not say anything. Many of them never said anything. If they did create families and get married or have children afterwards, they, many of them chose to remain silent. They were silent during the war and they remained silent in life afterwards as well.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Why do you think scholars have been so reluctant to talk about it and, um, I get the sense from, from this book that there were scholars who were uncomfortable with your work, mm-hmm. right? This is, this Why, is very true. <laughs> what do you make um, of that?
2: I, You know, I come from a different world where I, I regard academic study and exploration and understanding as crucial. Um, I also regard the experiences of women and children or any people in, in the Holocaust as something that it's almost unfathomable for us to understand, and for us to say we don't want to know about some aspects of it, we we don't think it's important. I think is very much disrespectful of the people who lived through the Holocaust. Um, I have been I've given talks on sexual abuse of women and on children, and very often, and I'm not the only one. There are multiple reports of this by academics in the literature. Um, we're, someone in the audience will, some academic will stand up and say, "Why do you want to talk about this? It's not important. Um, it's personal. It's it's uh, it's it's um, degrading. Why should we demean women's memories? Why should we talk about this, and especially children's experiences? Why do we need to know about it?" And I find that um, very unacceptable, very disrespectful of women. I really do believe we need to. Um, understand what happened to them. And as horrific as it is, it leads me to respect them even more that they could survive this and live with it and deal with it and come through it. They had the, the courage to face these experiences and to deal with them for better or for worse. And I believe we should have the courage to do so and in so doing to, to honor them. So I wrote the book not to denigrate women's or children's experiences, not to demean them in any way, but to honor them and to to give them the credit that they had to experience such absolutely awful things. We need to understand and honor them and respect them for it.
1: So are the people who object to this work um, Holocaust deniers in general, or is it just that they find this line of inquiry Distasteful.
2: Yes, they are not Holocaust deniers. These are most often the, the academics who study the Holocaust. Um, these are people steeped in Holocaust studies that I talk to in conferences. They're interested in this. These are not the so called um, population who doesn't know anything about the Holocaust and denies that it ever occurred or diminishes its, its extent or severity. Um, it's not them at all. It is the academics and the archivists. Um, that I've had the most conflict with. Um, And it's not everyone. There's today much more acceptance of it. But certainly in the time that I was researching the book and trying to find um, testimonies and references, um, I met with a number of archivists in different libraries um, that wouldn't allow me access to this information or simply ignored my requests, my inquiries, my emails, my phone calls, Um, not only mine, but my colleagues' even um, ex-archivists, librarians themselves who had worked at the libraries that I was asking for help from um, would try to contact them on my behalf and they too were discounted and ignored. It really was um, a fair challenge. Um, There were a number of archives that I visited in Israel and the very first one I went to, um, eventually after struggling for a while to get an appointment and traveling to Israel to, to meet this particular man and he helped me for a day or two And he then sent me an email to say, I'm so sorry, but my director will not allow you to have any access to any of the archives, uh, the the testimonies we have that report sexual abuse. Um, This is not something that we allow. So, you know, that was very typical of the kind of response I got. Others... um, one, for example, I was eventually told that there were eight testimonies in their archives that they had that did report sexual abuse, but that I could not have access to them. Um, and others opened their doors to me and said, this is amazing. As long as you preserve the confidentiality of the the people who've given the testimony, we are happy for you to explore the issue. And even here in Canada, where I try to contact um to, to search the Shoah Foundation, one of the biggest depositories of testimonies that we have, over 52,000 testimonies already, um, I was told, well, many of these are restricted. They have restricted access. So you can only look at them in a library which has access to the full archives. So I contacted about 10 or 12 universities where I could potentially travel to to, to get access to these, and I only had responses from one that would allow me to come in, and that was the University of Toronto. So I spent some days at the University of Toronto where I could access some of these more restricted um, testimonies on, uh, in person
1: or online
2: and was able and, to do it then.
1: Oh, so yeah. given all of that difficulty, um, wh- what is your source material? How, how much material were you able to examine to base this work on okay in the end
2: i reported on 160 cases or people children who had been sexually abused in the book Um, some of these come from memoirs that the children as adults have written themselves Um, A few, but very few, are based on diaries that were written very close to the time of the the war, during the war, or immediately afterwards. But there are very, very few child diaries available. I think altogether only about 55 have ever been found. Um, Largely because very young children couldn't read and write. Um, Secondly, because material paper was not available, or pencils, or pens. Um, Thirdly, that it was extremely dangerous to keep written diaries, written records of anything. If the Nazis found them, the whole family would have been killed. Um, Fourthly, because those who rescued the children could not keep track of them in writing. It was very difficult to do so. And if they did, they were coded and, and hidden in four or five different places with different codes allowing them to access just one part of the information of where the child was, what the name was, who the parents were, anything like that. Because if they were found, the children would have been um, discovered and killed. And so could would the the rescuers and the families that hid them, for example, or the, the institutions, the schools and, and orphanages that might have hidden them. So very few records were actually kept of children and their diaries When they did write them sometimes, for example, one girl, um, you would write in her diary and then her parents would dig up a hole in the the garden and the diary would be buried there. And then when she wanted to write some more, they'd dig it up again. She could write some more and they'd rebury it. Um, Those kinds of things. Or the diaries were were given to friends who lived nearby, not Jewish friends, uh, who hid them under the floors or in the walls. And these were perhaps rescued 20, 30 years later when that child who survived went back and found a friend and said, did you keep my diary? Um, So very, very few diaries of children actually exist. So the sources come from stories of adults who have written their memoirs um, and report sexual abuse as a child, Uh, very few from the children written at the time themselves, but the both of them come from testimonies that are, are available in these archives. Now, when a child has written about, uh, published, or as an adult, their own stories and reported sexual abuse, I did report their actual names and the reference where the, this material was written, so the book or whatever it was written in. When I managed to get hold of testimonies that were allowed to be public I again used the children's names. Um, but when I was had access to these restricted t- testimonies which were not available for public use, I indicated them by indicated this in the book by putting giving them a name, an arbitrary name, randomly, and noting it with an asterisk. So that anytime there is a name mentioned in the book where there's an asterisk next to it, it's not their real name, it's a pseudonym that I've given them. And no other identifying information is given. The incident of what happened to them is recorded, and sometimes the country where it happened or the, who the perpetrator might have been, what kind of person, he was a soldier, he was a uh, the, the hiding father or whoever, but no further detail is given. So it's not possible to identify them out of respect for their wishes um, to remain anonymous.
1: And for now, their family's wishes. Yes, indeed. I assume that this entire issue of child sex abuse was not part of the discussion in the post-war war war crimes trials. Would that be a good assumption? Um,
2: To the to the to the large extent, yes. I am not aware of this as an issue arising in the war crimes trials, but. To be honest, the, the, I have not read all the manuscripts, the, the thousands of documentation pages that come from the war crimes trials. So if it was mentioned a few times, it could have been. There was one one uh, person who is fairly well-known, um, and he wrote under the pseudonym of um, Katsetnik, which means basically a concentration camp inmate. Um, and he used his concentration camp number. Now, he wrote, soon after the war, a number of books which were unbelievably stunning about child sex abuse. And he gave testimony in the war crimes trials after the war, which is why I'm I'm responding to your question with this information. Um, He wrote books about what he he said were his siblings' experiences, and one doesn't know uh, if they were his or his siblings'. But he talked about the the boys and the girls, but particularly the boys who were used as what were called peoples or dolly boys. Um, These were sex slaves of the SS guards and the kapos, the block leaders um, in the camps. And these were children, um, young boys around the age of 13, 14, 15, 16, who were used as um, sexual slaves and also as domestic slaves. So they had to keep the, the boots cleaned, the, the perpetrator's boots cleaned and his meals prepared for him and his, his uh, room tidy and so on, and provide sexual services for him. Now, the interesting, you know, there's, there's, uh, homosexuality was, of course, condemned by the Nazi regime and punished severely, Um, And homosexuals in the camp were punished severely. But these kapos or SS were allowed to get away with this basically homosexual abuse of children um, without any uh, uh, penalty accruing to them either. It was regarded as acceptable. That's what you did. You had a sex slave who was a young boy. And you used him horrifically. Now, uh, Katsetnik writes about these stories in graphic detail. There are others. Eli Weisel, one of the most respected writers in the the, the Holocaust, also talks about sexual abuse of a young boy in these camps in this way. Um, So there were some reports soon after the war, and these did make their way into the Nuremberg trials, yes. Um, But they're horrific. Kazetnik also talks about the use of, his, of a young girl, which he says was his, his sister, um, as a prostitute in the camps, as a sex worker. They were called prostitutes in that time. Um, and these were young girls who were forced to serve in brothels. And most of the camps eventually had brothels for the senior prisoners or the, the, the Germans or the SS or the guards who, who, who worked in the camps. And these were young girls. Um, We did not think that Jewish girls were used in these brothels for a long time, but there's a fair amount of evidence to suggest that they were included as well.
1: Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the 1983 conference on women in the Holocaust. Did did Mm -hmm. you find the same sort of scholarly resistance even in this conference?
2: Um, No, the the reports on that conference do not show, but in that 1983, this was focused on women in the Holocaust. So the whole experience of women was explored for the first time, and that was what was so dramatic about this conference, was that women's issues were um, highlighted for the first time. Up until that time, um, the conferences that had been held or the research that was done was done on Jews, on all Jews. Um, not men or women separately. But um, and in this conference, the women got together for the first time to say, our stories are different and you need to listen to us. And they spoke about um, their experiences as mothers, as homemakers, as being isolated without their partners, and then, of course, how they were treated in camps as well. So not only sexual experiences or reproductive experiences, but their life experiences. Um, now, that was not uh, – about 10 years after that, about 1990, 1991, there was another conference that was uh, created or organized by the Children of Survivors. Um oh, I didn't know the, that. Yes. no this was uh, another interesting development, the Children of uh, Holocaust Survivors. Um, have had also unique and unbelievably difficult experiences as well because of the trauma that their parents had experienced. Um, some of them were, were were drowned in information about the camps by their parents who could not stop talking about it. Others were totally isolated from what happened. The, the parents could not talk about it at all. The children didn't understand what had happened to their parents, just knew that they had nightmares at night or were miserable or depressed or whatever. But I never understood it. So there were very different kinds of experiences of children, and they got together as children of survivors in about the nineteen nineties for their first conference. But it took them another ten years before before the children began to talk about the sexual abuse that they had experienced. So it took them a long time to feel safe, in the same way as the women who'd had their women's conference in the nineteen eighties took another 10 years before they began to speak about sexual abuse among the women as well. And sometimes, you know, some of the women said, we don't need to talk about this either, but um, it it was spoken about and has become even more um, spoken about as, as the years have gone by.
1: We're talking about multi-generational trauma, oh, right? Absolutely. absolutely. This does, this doesn't, this doesn't go away when it stops. And maybe we need to be mindful for, for that in our own time. Oh, absolutely. Those of the second
2: generation, we're even beginning to see studies on the third generation of what's happened to the children, the grandchildren of survivors uh, today. So that's emerging at at the, at the moment. Yes. And the trauma is, is carried on one way or another through the families for many, many years.
1: Yes, indeed. Um, What do you mean when you talk about the sweetening of the Holocaust? Because that seems like that might be applicable to some of this reluctance. So can you expand on that? Yes. Um,
2: This is is actually a term that was uh, noted by a very noted Holocaust scholar, Lawrence Langer, uh, who also came up with the idea of choiceless choices, that people had to face choices in the Holocaust that were really a choice between two horrible options, and there is no right answer. They're both terrible choices. The, he called those choiceless choices, and, and there are many of them in the Holocaust, such as when do you, which child do you choose? And the SS says to me, says to you, you can choose one child, this one or that one. Choose. That is not a choice. It's a choiceless choice. Um, but Lawrence Langer talked about sweetening the Holocaust, and that's really what is happening here when we choose not to talk about the unpleasant sides, especially, for example, if Jews did bad things to each other. If in the camps someone um, ate the whole piece of bread that they had and and took somebody else's, um, or stole their shoes, which were life-saving things to have, you couldn't survive if you had no shoes in the camps. Um, And people would steal things at night. They would just steal the shoes. They would steal the bread. Um, Sometimes mothers or children would eat the, the, the crumbs that they managed to pick up and not share with their mothers or, or anything like that if they happened to be together. So Lawrence Langer talks about sweetening the Holocaust by not exposing these things, by not talking about these unpleasant aspects that we really don't want to um, say were, were prevalent or, or did exist at all. Um, and, and that is, as you say, it's very much uh, the reaction of these... Um, Holocaust scholars who would prefer not to um, expose some of these more unpleasant aspects of behavior. But this has been happening since shortly after the war when people wrote about the the more devastating things that had happened to them. Sometimes in in reprinting these things or translating them into other languages, these more unpleasant aspects were, were left out and omitted. And that's a part of sweetening the Holocaust. It happens in many various forms, but this is one of them, yes.
1: Uh, I am not a European historian by training, but I am aware of the concept of the good German, the idea that um, that there were a lot of Germans who did not know what was going on. They didn't know about the Holocaust. Um, after reading this book in particular, it's hard. It's hard for me to believe that. Um, how, how do you? How do you see that?
2: Um, I think the idea that people did not know what was happening is, is pretty hard to understand. Um, especially in, in, well, anywhere. There, were not, you know, there, were, there was only less than 1% of the German population was Jewish. Um, and that's hard to, to fathom as well. Um, you think it was most of, the, most of the German society was Jewish, that there would be such an anti-Semitic onslaught against Jews. But it's less than 1% of the German population. But wherever Jews lived and they were taken from their homes or sent away, people saw this, people knew that the next door house was now empty and they could go in and loot whatever they wanted from that house if they, if they could. Or that the, the SS took over those houses and gave them to buddies and friends. I think it was very difficult. There was so much anti-Semitism in the propaganda, in the newspapers, in the teaching in schools. It was not. It's not possible to have not being aware of an anti-Jewish experience in Germany. Yes, the camps, the, the worst of the camps, were isolated. They were in in remote uh, areas, in the forests, and so on. So people. Generally, did not know about what was that they that they might have known. There were camps in some places, like Dachau, you could actually look into the camps, um, but they didn't always know the details of what was happening until after the war and the, the films began to to show this. Yes, so the good the good German, yes, maybe there were some who did not know, but you know, there's also like there were some Jewish people who did bad things. Um, there are some German people who did good things, and I think there's always the exception there were some there are many reports of the occasional German who helped somebody to hide who who rescued somebody who gave somebody an extra slice of bread or to um, who took a shine to a family and, and and supported them. There are stories of individual Germans who were were good and I mean there's no you cannot just paint a black picture of everybody, Jewish or German. Um, but did the majority of Germans know about what was happening? Certainly they would have known about anti-Semitism in all its depths in that time. And did they know what was happening to Jews being thrown out of their homes, their jobs, um, their, their workplaces, their, their businesses, their properties? Yes, this was pretty common. It, you know, it was not not hidden in, in the slightest. Did they know about the worst of the atrocities that was happening in the camps, the gas chambers and so on? Maybe not. Not Maybe most people did not know about it. But stories about this began to emerge in 1942, 43. Um, there were reports across to Europe, to, to the, the leaders in the UK, to in the USA, to the Allies, um, that there were reports of what was happening. Were they believed? Not necessarily to, to in, in their full extent. Um, were they acted on? Not often by the, the Allied armies but did people in Germany know what was happening? They certainly knew a lot. It was not possible to be totally isolated from what was happening to the Jews in that country.
1: I suspect the paradigm of the good German is really more about Americans wanting to put some distance between the horrors of the Holocaust and the realization that that so many Americans and so much of American culture is connected to Germany. I, I sometimes think that that might be the point of it, that it isn't really about Germans at all, that it was about us. Um, l- let me ask you one last question. How do you take care of yourself when you are dealing... I. I um, I f- I have found all of this terribly distressing, and as I said, as a historian, I thought I knew a great deal about this topic, but now I realize that there was a I don't know an a, a, an air of of decadence and and dehumanization that I never even imagined. Um, so as you work with this, how do you take care of yourself?
2: Um, it's a difficult question, but I think I have a wonderful family. I have an incredibly supportive and, and amazingly um, loving husband who has helped me through all of this. And who tolerates me bumping him and waking him up in the middle of the night when I read something terrible and say, Bernie, you've just got to listen to this. I can't believe anybody did this. And then I wake him up and tell him the story so that he can't sleep for the rest of the night and (laughs) I turn over and go to sleep. Um, And I've had, you know, I have a daughter who works very closely with me, who edits my books for me, and she is a remarkable Holocaust and genocide scholar herself. Um, So I've had a lot of support as well. On the other hand, too, I've been reading about this for almost 20 years now, um, and, and one does get not um, blasé but, and, and not insensitive, but I, I know it exists. Um, it's not a shock to me anymore. Um, I still occasionally come across a story that I cannot imagine could ever have happened, but most of the time I am aware that what I'm reading is, is not uncommon. And and I can deal with this. And as I said, I've spent my whole life dealing with women in difficult uh, political, social, economic, religious situations and the the unpleasant experiences they have primarily with reproductive life, but also with sexuality and children in that same experience as well. So so I suppose I've become a little, um, not hardened to it, but familiar with it. It doesn't shock as much today as it did 15, 20 years ago.
1: Has it, has it impacted your sense of, of who we are as people?
2: Um, I think yes, to an extent. Um, there, there is a very famous um, writer, Father Patrick Desbois, who says, I belong to a race that kills children, two-year-old children, is what he actually said. And I said, yes, and I've added to that, and I say, "Yes, I belong to a race that kills two year old children but abuses them physically, sexually, and emotionally first and And it's you know that's I suppose it's it's, it's skewed my view of the world that I do belong to a world that is able and capable and does do that. And if you look around us, I mean, look at what's happening in Ukraine today um raping women as a weapon of war and that's happened in many genocides since the Holocaust. That's not unusual. Um, we still do it to each other. We humiliate, we we abuse, we um, cause the most untold horror and hardship on families, on people um, and you're seeing it unfold in front of our eyes in Ukraine right now as well as in other parts of the world where these kinds of genocides have occurred. And we see it in war situations all the time. Um, we are a race that kills people I mean, that, that's really what we do yes we can do unfortunately so that's my view yes I still believe some some people are wonderful and I have marvelous you know wonderful people who've supported me and and the worlds that I've lived with and I'm, I'm generally a very happy person although my children keep saying to me please will I write a happy book now
1: Um, (laughs) um, Uh, One more question before I let you go, Beverly. Can you tell us what you're working on now?
2: Um, Yes. In fact, there's another book that has followed this one. Because of my work on Betrayed and Child Sex Abuse in the Holocaust, I became very involved in what was happening with child sex abuse around the world. So I delved, delved into that experience of just child sex abuse in general across the globe. Um, And I have another book which was published earlier this year called Child Sex Abuse, Power, Profit, Perversion. Um, And that looks at child sex abuse in the family, in institutions, and we've seen it in the schools, in in the the, uh, scouts, in the sporting bodies, um, in countries and national policies that seem to be more conducive to child sex abuse, like in... um, South Africa, for example, where rape is so common in India, where child sex abuse and sex abuse of all kinds is occurring daily. Um, and then on a global level, and it we, we leads you into um, sex trafficking, child marriage, the use, misuse of the Internet to abuse sexually. Um, so that is what the, the next book was about. And uh, that was published earlier this year. I'm working on another book right now, which is in the process of its final editing stages on abuse in obstetric care um called obstetric abuse which is another one that will come out hopefully oh, next that's year fascinating. yes and i'm um, going back to work on more to do with the holocaust when i can but these two are keeping me busy at the moment
1: yes well thank you so much for your time and for this really enlightening discussion i appreciate it so much beverly
2: Thank you, thank you, Jeanette, for for inviting me. Great, great well, pleasure course. to speak with you.
1: Oh, thank you.